Are you doing well? Yep. Isn't God good? Yes. You know, just the sense of God's presence and love that's amongst us this morning and the things that he's already been doing. I want to um, go on and, and preach um, into something that we dealt with last year, uh, and that was the fact that we believe as a church that women are equals to men. And last year we did a forum on this. I gave out a lot of information for cell groups and for individuals, and we did some preaching on it as well. And I want to just continue that conversation, even though I know I might be the topic of um, lunchtime conversation for some of you. But the church has a kingdom mandate, is the first thing that I want to, want to actually say. Um, keep that in mind, that the church has a kingdom mandate. We are to continue the mandate that Jesus started and gave to the earth, and we're to use his methods. So just remember that. But I want to actually say that I love the next generation rising up from within us. Is there anyone else that's enjoying that, having young people up on the stage and, and uh, preaching and, and, and being involved in things? That's what church is supposed to be, be like. But I want to ask you, when I say that and talk about the next generation, do you think just guys? Or do you actually think women also? I mean, are the leaders of the next generation, good on you, Tori, are the leaders of the next generation just men or are they men and women, guys and girls? Can I, can I get um, 10, what, just tell the person next to you what your answer is, by the way, while I get 10 young men who are under 30 to come up here and just stand up here. You don't have to do anything. I just want you up here. <laughs> Carl, you can lead. Come on, Carl. That's good. Yep. And, and nine others who are under 30. Come on up, up here now. Quickly, quickly, because otherwise you'll take, you'll take up too much of my preaching time. Just, can I have some of these guys? I want nine of you, ten of you up here. Now, seriously, when we talk about the next generation, excellent, good on you for coming up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Give them a clap as they come. This is, this is good to see. Stand right up, guys. Stand right up so that you're right in people's view. Now, when I talk about the next generation, <laughs> the girls can count, you notice? <laughs> when I talk about the next generation, is this what I mean? Is this what we think? That it's just male? Or should it actually have 10 females up here as well? Can we have 10? who are actually part of the next generation that God's raising up and God's equipping and God's anointing. Come and stand in between so we kind of get a male-female, male-female sort of grid going on, if you would. Is this actually what the next generation of leaders in the body of Christ should look like? If you believe that, give them a real big clap or a real big wave that it's actually like this. Okay, thanks everyone. You can take a seat. But it's surprising you don't have to go back very many years before it was all just male in the thinking. Right. It would just be men that were there. You know, within a short number of years after Jesus resurrected, Christianity radically spread and blossomed. They say that by the beginning of the second century, there were over 100,000 people that had been converted. And, it was, and, and, and that went on to radically affect and touch every um, society within Europe. 
And a large contributing factor was the fact that Christianity restored and honor the inner worth to 50% of the population, the women. You know, think about what I just said. Christianity exploded. But one of the reasons it was able to explode in the way that it did was it raised the profile, the value, the esteem of 50% of the population that were alive at that time. And that was the women. You see, God's new called out people, what the, the Greek word is the word ecclesia, which simply means church, had a kingdom mandate to set the oppressed free and to release captives. And women in Judaism and every society alive at that time were oppressed. And many had the status of just simply servitude. They were like a chattel to a man. And Jesus' teaching elevated the place of women. And that kingdom mandate is still the mandate for his church today to elevate the place and the value of women in society. See, what what we're talking about theologically is either complementarianism or egalitarianism. And people will, within the church, have one view, either complementarian, which is like that, where women are secondary to men, women have a second place in, the, in, the, in society to men, or it's egalitarian, where more like the picture of the one before, if we can just go back to that, where men and women are equal in standing. And as an eldership, over 21 years ago, we determined that our view on this was that men and women were actually equal. Depending on the giftings that they had been given by God, they were able to rise to any position of of leadership within the church. And we've seen that outworked. And that's still the view of the eldership and myself. But let me say, if you are a complementarian and you believe that there is a hierarchical uh, uh, situation with regards to men and women, you are still welcome to be part of St. Albans Baptist Church. This is not a salvation issue. This is a theological issue of understanding. It's not something that uh, puts us into a completely different context. But our belief is that men and women are actually um, equal. You know, there is much scholarship today, if you, if you uh, go to, into the books and online, that is actually helping to unpack and understand um, the scriptures that often have been viewed to say that women need to be subordinate to men. Now, last time I was explaining that there was a temporary um, exclusion to women. Paul writing to Timothy, which Timothy was the pastor in Ephesus, and having been to Ephesus now, I I get a much greater understanding of what was actually in play. And, And women were coming out of the cult of Diana, and they were coming to Christ, and they and in the cult of Diana, they had all sorts of positions that they were uh, used to working in, and they were coming over into the church and, and, and not knowing Christianity and the doctrines and the teachings. And, and Paul writes to Timothy, and he puts a temporary um, exclusion upon women coming into leadership and women teaching until they were trained. Yep. And last time also, I talked about the word head. 
Um, uh, uh, and, and the scriptures talk about the head, Christ is the head of the man and man is the head of the woman. And, and in, in English, um, head can mean hierarchical authority over, like the head of a company, or head can mean the source, like the head of a river, the headwaters of a river, the source of the river. And in English, we naturally have, from a, a male-dominated way of viewing Scripture for years, thousands of years, have seen it as hierarchical. Man is above a woman. But actually, in the Greek, it's not so. Kephol, which is the word, the Greek word for head, equals source. There are other Greek words which mean has authority over. Archon, which means ruler, or despot, which means master, or time, which means rank, are used in, in Scripture to designate when one is hierarchically above another one. And, and egalitarian and complementarian um, ish, uh, discussion that is going on in the church, it's largely a, a decided discussion, but we still have Baptist churches that are very com are, are complementarian, and they won't allow women to be able to teach. They won't, at least in New Zealand. If they become a missionary and go overseas, somehow there's a clause that allows a woman to exercise her gifts. But largely it is a decided issue in, in most places. But um, it's very similar to the, to the discussion about slavery back in the 18th century. And today, no Christian would argue that one race, the white side of races, the white race is superior to another race, or dark-skinned races. No Christian would ever argue that today, that white races are hierarchically above Dark-skinned races. That's evolutionary thinking. It was part of Darwin's thesis that he laid out that, that uh, uh, some races were above other races. It's what we would call today white supremacy extremism. But it's not Christianity. And yet the Bible was often quoted in the 1800s to justify the keeping of one race as slaves in both America and Britain, often quoted, until finally a distinction and an understanding was, was um, come to where they realized that the Bible was talking about slavery, which existed and, was, and it was written about when the Bible was written, and the it, and it, Bible did teach how to live as a Christian within that environment, but that did not mean that the Bible or God condoned slavery. Can you see the difference that people had to come to? To understand? And so the kingdom mandate of Jesus was liberation and freedom of slavery, of anyone in slavery, because they were people under oppression. And it's exactly the same, I believe, as we look at this issue of whether women are secondary to men or equal with men. So let's jump in and, and have a look at um, the things from the very first day of the new covenant uh, coming into, into place. And from the very first day of the, of the new covenant being given to the world, women were empowered, honored, and valued. 
The church right from the beginning dignified women by teaching Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the church acted on that, on that principle, by placing women into leadership positions immediately. Priscilla, just say her name if you would. Isn't it a beautiful name? Priscilla. Priscilla was part of the apostolic team that founded the church in Corinth and Ephesus and possibly into other places as well. If you have a look at the scripture in Acts chapter 18, it says this, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. They arrived in Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila, and he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now, it's really interesting. In the verse before, he says Aquila and Priscilla. But in this verse, he says, Aquila, he says Priscilla and Aquila. And there is some, some um, meaning in the positioning of whether he speaks the wife's names first or the husband's name first. And in Romans chapter 16, in verses 3 to 5, he says this, Greet Priscilla, again naming the wife first, and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. And not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. So this was a woman with her husband, but a woman who, who moved at the highest levels of church planting and church encouragement, encouragement in, the, in, the, in the gospel just taking off into Turkey, but also into Syria as well. And, and it says, greet also the church that meets in their homes. So she didn't just move at that church planting level, but she actually was part of, with her husband, of, of being pastoring a church, which were all in houses in those days. It was a, a house church. And then Paul praises and identifies another woman apostle by the name Junia. In Romans chapter 16, it says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles." who are of note among the apostles. You know, back in the 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, um, there's, there's commentaries written on Junia or comments written on her in commentaries where um, scholars, males, tried to make her out to be a man. And they've given up on that now because, you see, there's this inbuilt thing that men are somehow and women are somehow... This is a lady who was of note among the apostles. She was, she was someone really special among the apostles, Paul says. Lydia, in Acts chapter 16, opened her house in Philippi, and it, which became a church, and she clearly became the lead, one of the leaders, if not the leader, in that church. In Romans 16.1 of Phoebe, it says she became a deacon. I commend to you. Paul says, our sister Phoebe, a deacon in the church in Centuria. And then John writes um, to a lady, uh, the leader of a church, he calls the chosen lady. This is the pastor of a church, and he calls her the chosen lady in 2 John chapter 1 and verse 1. To the lady chosen by God and to her children, whom I love in the truth. So women were immediately in the first century, century church Put, placed into leadership positions 
according to their giftings. And then there's the modeling that Jesus did. If we start with the modeling that he did after he'd resurrected, this is the birth. This is the very beginning of the the new covenant. Who does he turn up to and reveal himself to first? Two women. And he did it because he trusted them. He did it because they had value. He did it because they had as much place as men in what was coming upon the earth, this called-out people, this ecclesia, this thing called a church that he would bring upon in a new way that was totally different to all the old and the patterns and the women had to be quiet of Judaism. He trusted them. Very first day. He also told two of his most powerful truths um, to women while he was uh, still alive on the earth. Um, To Martha, he revealed, I'm the resurrection and the life. It's a pretty important truth, eh? For our future. And he told the Samaritan woman that he was the living water. See, Jesus clearly trusted and respected and included women and what they bring just in being who they are. And when he itinerated... And he had no income coming in. He was probably a very good carpenter. Does anyone think he was shoddy as a carpenter? Anyone not want to get a table from Jesus, the carpenter who lives just over there in Nazareth? He would have been really good. He doesn't say in Scripture, but just just who he is kind of says that, doesn't it? Well, when he had no income coming in, he was kept by the women. In other words, he wasn't the breadwinner He trusted them to be the breadwinners. In Luke chapter 8, it says, Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, and Joanna, the the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. I love that. I just think that's so cool, that here's Herod, who is against Jesus, but the wife of one of his top officials in his household, in his domain, in his kingdom is supporting Jesus. <laughs> He's earning, chooses earning all the money, but his wife's spending it to keep Jesus doing what he's doing, moving around the, 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 um, the Galilee and, and into Jerusalem as well. And Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. See, Jesus didn't write a book. His most powerful teaching method was to model a way to live coupled with his words, to model and to teach, to model and to teach, to model and to teach. That's how Jesus did it. It was others that wrote the Bible all around him to record it for us. And his clear message was, with women um, in the way he treated them, in the way he trusted them, in the way um, that he allowed them close to, to be around him, was that their ministries and their roles count. And that attitude continued on with the leaders of the fledging church that started after the day of Pentecost. And actually, Jesus' attitude, but we could say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Yahweh's attitude, God's attitude of valuing women shows in the story of the woman caught in adultery. I mean, imagine that. She was probably naked. She was probably, because she was caught in the very act, it says, She was probably just dragged, vulnerable, 
and naked before all of these men whose lust, seeing this woman there, would have just risen up. And their fundamentalism of Judaism, and we've got a stoner, we've got a stoner. So you've got this mixture of violence and lust in the men. And Jesus doesn't even say a word. Doesn't say a word. But he did write in the dust. And we usually, as preachers, say that he wrote the sins of the men in the dust. Because all the men slunk off in the end. No one threw a stone at all. But possibly the first things that he wrote in really big letters was, where is the man? Because adultery takes two. And they were both caught in the act. Where's the guy? Where's the naked guy dragged before all of us? You see, it would seem these men were doing the thing that men have done many times in history. They were doing the man thing. Let's take the woman. Let's blame the woman. She's at fault. She's the problem. Did they actually let this man go? Well, it would seem so. Did some of them recognize him? Did some of them go to school with him? So we better just let him escape. Did they protect him? Because men can be excused in sexual issues far easier than women can be excused. It's the woman's fault. But Jesus didn't shame her. Jesus just said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. You see, he came to save and to restore, not to bring condemnation and judgment on people, This woman was given a chance to break it off with her lover and go home and rebuild her marriage with her husband who would now know exactly what had been taking place. And I think it's true that God has incredible empathy for women who are tainted with what used to be called ill repute. You see, women bear that accusation far more than men ever do. The genealogy of Jesus that's recorded in Matthew gives 42 generations of people who are honoured to be in the back ancestry of Jesus Christ. And they're almost all men except for five. 37 men, but five women are named. And most of these women were women who got into trouble with their lives sexually. But all of them were hung out to dry by their men in, and, in or around their lives. They were badly treated by men. You look for what's the common denominator of the five women who are listed in Jesus' general genealogy. It's that they were badly treated by their men. And women are much more vulnerable, and it's much more obvious when they're abused or used by men. So have a look at these names One is Tamar, then Rahab, then Ruth, then Bathsheba, and Mary. But their names are listed there as an honor to be in the genealogy of of Jesus. And yet their stories involve sexual brokenness. Not quite all, but most. In Mary's case, 
It was the innuendo of sexual immorality that she had to live with for all of her life, that she'd had sex before marriage, even though she hadn't. And it's too long to really open up each one of those five, five women's lives and to speak about it, but just to note about Bathsheba. She was the faithful wife of an honest and incredibly loyal man, loyal to David, till this king called David forced her into adultery. And God had these women's names included to honor them because each one illustrates his ability to restore someone and to renew someone and to give them incredible, incredible honor and value. And what Jesus wrote on the ground before all the men that were there was enough to highlight each one of their own sins because each one slunk away and put their rocks down. But the truth is God rebuilds people and takes us broken and ashamed over things that we've done or things we've thought or things we've said because each one of us carries guilt and shame and weakness but God lifts that off us whether we're male or female. And it's on males just as much as it's on females. All of us are broken people in need of the lifting of shame and guilt off our lives. And he does it equally for men as he does for women. And he gives equally the right to become a daughter or a son of the king. It's all equal. And Peter, when he preached the very first sermon that was ever preached in the New Covenant... He spoke of, in fact, he quoted God's plan of equality. In Acts chapter 2, he says, And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. I'll pour it on your sons and your daughters, and they shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. So at the very, very, very beginning of the church, male and female, sons and daughters, and male and female, slaves, are equal in their footing as mouthpieces for God and being anointed by the Spirit. He doesn't say, men, get over this side and I've got it for you. Women, a bit will spill off them and you'll get a little bit. He doesn't do that. The very first sermon, he speaks equality of being used by God and empowered by God. And so this, this ennobling treatment of women in Jesus' day was absolutely revolutionary. It went against the flow of the culture that they lived in till culture itself began to turn in societies. The Romans had such a low view of women it was common for men to have recreational sex with other men because women were perceived as inherently inferior. Jewish rabbis silenced women in the synagogue. Greeks and Romans used women as temple prostitutes. So you've got to kind of ask, where did this if men and women in God's plan were supposed to be equal, where did this 
degradation of the place of and role of women, where did the slide start to happen that, that it came down to this place where women were inferior to men? Well, you come back to Adam and Eve. All of this flows down from Eve's sin and the consequences that God pronounced upon Eve. Genesis chapter 3. To the woman, God said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And this judgment has played out throughout human history with men treating women as inferiors. And it's carried down generation after generation after generation. And the power of this has now been broken and paid for on the cross of, of Calvary by Jesus Christ. But the kingdom mandate for the church is to reverse the consequences of this sin by living out the opposite in our relationships. But the, the mandate for the church today is to live out the opposite of that so that what has been broken becomes reality in people's circumstances and lives. And it becomes so attractive, it begins to do what it did in the first century and turn culture around. Because people are looking. Women are looking. Women are standing today and saying, enough is enough in many, many areas of, of, of society. Because of the degradation that's been there. And the mandate upon God's church is to believe what the Bible says and actually bring that equality to, into play so that it becomes a model, so that it becomes a mirror. And people look at our relationships and they say, something different. It's different to what I see in other people's relationships. Tell me what the difference is. Jesus commanded has called out people to live in the opposite spirit to Adam. What did Adam do as soon as he was found and Eve was found by God? She made me do it. And in fact, the woman you gave me, she made me do it. So it's not my fault. It's actually some belongs to you, God, and a lot belongs to her. Didn't get him very far. And Paul commands men to stand with their wives, to lay down their lives for them, to teach and to teach them, which is a huge change from someone, a woman in, in Jesus' day who was an uneducated chattel in many circumstances. Paul says, no, teach them, stand with them, lay down your lives for them. Paul told, told men, far from ruling over your wife, give yourself to her as your equal. Let me show you this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 1 to 5. Is this okay? Yep. As I said, I may be discussed over lunch. <laughs> this is what is written here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it's good to live a celibate life. Paul was really keen on singleness. He thought it was a great thing to, to do. He, and so he's saying, be single if you possibly can be single. It's a higher call. But he says, because there's so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. Now, the man reading that would think, great, I've got her. She's mine. 
I'm going to have her. This is kind of a control sort of language. And then they would have read on in the letter, and each woman should have her own husband. And the man has to go, oh, damn, that's equality. I get to have her, but she gets to have me. Oh, well, maybe there's something unequal coming just soon, you know? And so the husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. Oh, darn, that's responsibility and equality again. I don't get to have her do whatever I want. This is equality. Wow. And so he's, he's now hearing, hoping there's something that gives him authority to, to, to have his way in some way. And he says, the wife gives authority over her body to the husband. Great, he thinks. Fantastic. Her body belongs to me. I, I, I finally get something that gives me some control. And then Paul goes on and said, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Equality again. And he says, do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree. Equality again. Has to be an agreed thing if you're not going to have sex. To refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. There's the one opportunity to be able to refrain from sex together because you want to be at the prayer meeting. (laughs) That's what it says. Afterwards, you should come together again. I love that. That's a a euphemism. It's that, that come together again. And afterwards, you should have passionate sex again. That's what it means. So that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now here Paul is writing equality at one of the deepest levels of humanness. Equality between men and women at that level. And 2,000 years ago, these were extraordinary statements to be made. Coming into a society where men could divorce their wife for almost any reason. One rabbi wrote that it was okay to divorce your wife if she burnt the toast. Women were just a chattel. And Paul's saying equality, equality, a new people, equal with each other. See, Paul says, don't get divorced. Stay together. Work through the difficulties. And he echoes Jesus' words of what God has joined together. Let man not separate. You see, the value and status of women in society was phenomenally lifted in the first century. And Christianity exploded partly as a result of the empowering of 50% of the population. And it changed the world. And our mandate today is to keep discovering what equality looks like and to pull down oppression in our relationships, not allow it to be there and model something new and model something more and model something extra that the world might never have seen before of what love looks like in a world of cheap sex and disposable relationships and eggshell inner confidence due to social media all around us. And men, we don't need to be scared by strong women. Let them grow strong. We just need to grow straighter and stronger ourselves as men. What we should fear is not strong women. We should fear being weak men. So let's encourage each other, whether male or female, to be all that we can be. 
men and women, created equal, who love God and are strong together in Christ. Can the band come, please? Stand to your feet with us. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and look them deep in the eyes <laughs> and say that you have been created my equal. You have been created my equal. I have been created your equal. Our world says an awful lot about what equality actually means and looks like. We have all sorts of labels, don't we? If we're intellectually um, challenged, if we're physically challenged, are we actually still equal? And Jesus declares that we are in him. No one is less than. And some of us have been wearing a label for too long. And it might not necessarily be, be, be about the fact that, um, you know, you're a female or you're a male or you're struggling.